Hello, and welcome back to the Arbitration Station. That seems like a signature tone that I have when we start this podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Never say that in any other context. No, exactly. Unless I'm like Nathan Lane in the Birdcage. Have you seen that movie? No. Okay. <laughs> Another pop culture episode coming up. Yeah. Okay, good. I feel very often i feel like i'm 84 years old when i'm talking to you but that's that's it, it gives us a good uh, dynamic for, for the podcast in a private relationship it's just very problematic for me <laughs> well what didn't make you feel old was being at the young arbitrators of sweden event where we got our award which we talked about Ooh, last episode nice segue Hello, <laughs> heard uh we got uh, the award and part of the award was a little quote that they would like us to read um, are you ready, Joel? It's an award with, with strings attached. Award with strings attached, but strings that we like. Besides the flowers, those were very nice, and and the admiration of those watching. Uh, here is what the award said. So the award translated into English is the Yas Arbitration Advancement Award, or in Swedish, Årets Skilje Förfarande Järning. That was the longest word I've ever seen. And here it goes. This year's recipients of the Yes Arbitration Advancement Award have proven to be highly in tune with both developments in the arbitration community as well as developments in the broadcasting arena. Little did they know we're like on GarageBand. With profound knowledge and witty insights, thank you, they provide a relevant, modern, and accessible commentary to international arbitration in a format that traverses geographical boundaries, reaching smartphones everywhere for opening new channels of communication and extending the Swedish arbitration community's international reach. Yoss is happy to celebrate the podcasters behind the arbitration station, Brian Kolick and Joel Dahlquist-Kulbori, with this year's Yoss Arbitration Advancement Award. That is quite possibly the nicest things people have ever said about me. <laughs> it's very un-Swedish, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm squirming here. Now we have to really shit-talk ourselves, ourselves for the rest of the episode <laughs> to compensate for, for starting everything off with praising ourselves. Yeah, well, we take it with great pride, and it just motivates us to keep on moving forward. That's a good way, actually. Just And also, keep them coming. There's plenty of more awards out there. Yes, and sponsors. I, the Yas is the only one that is sponsored, and we've been really bad about reaching out. But if you or your firm or your organization, any little bit counts. We have Jan Kunster, who's slaving away editing this podcast. Our post-production prophet from Prague. Oh, I like that. I like <laughs> Is he from Prague? Yeah, he probably yeah, is from Prague. He's he he from is. the Czech Republic, yeah. So yeah, calling all, calling all sponsors. Yeah, for sure. And one more thing before we introduce today's topic. Uh, yesterday, which is a was a was it was a Tuesday, the same day we published the previous episode, in a completely unrelated development. Four thousand five hundred, big number, four thousand five hundred Swedish female lawyers signed sort of a Me Too petition, but they they made. Uh, special hashtag in Swedish that was published in one of the biggest dailies in, in Sweden, basically sharing their stories and saying enough is enough. Uh, 
so it was. I, I thought we should just mention that since it sort of overlaps in time with with our previous discussions on Me Too in the arbitration context. So these were not, of course, not just arbitration lawyers because there's not four thousand five hundred of those in Europe probably, but there were lawyers. Basically, every woman I've ever met and right. studied with, or worked with, or hung out with was on this list. And I talked to a friend of mine who was involved in it. It, it, it grew out of a Facebook group that had twelve thousand members. And supposedly a lot of people, their names didn't get on the list of 4,500 because they had some technical glitch because too many people signed up right. in such a short amount of time. So it crashed and a lot of people missed out. So as, as we publish this, it will probably be adjusted so there's even more people. And Sweden is a tiny, tiny country. And this amount of, of lawyers standing up and saying enough is enough, it's just staggering. I, I'm amazed by the force behind it. And it was it was a very quick process. I think the whole turnaround was about a week. So this, you know, yeah. call for people to submit their responses, people who actually wrote in, people to sign, and this all was just turned around into an article in a in a very short time. It's yeah, and the the stories, the experiences shared, of course, ranged from just mildly uh, stupid, impolite things to almost rape uh, things, and yeah. most of them were uh, far exceeding the story you told last week as well it's it's just mind-blowing to take part of of stories in in the context i mean in a context that you could really relate to that we've all been in with people that we know and work with definitely and i think people wanted to make sure that this wasn't just a focus on th- maybe illegal acts that happened in this context and not to say that they were that you know there's a you know a call to lock these people up as we say to Hillary Clinton, but to kind of raise awareness and to um, create the discussion. Exactly what we did in our podcast last week is to yeah. know, kind of put it and on the, the, the newspaper itself. Uh, they were of course smart and, and got more stories out of this. So when they published this, uh, this petition, they also did a few stories connected to it in one of which they asked the major law firms in Sweden, like, do you share this? Uh, have you have it had, have you had any issues at your firm? And some of the firms dealt with it in a less less than uh, proficient way. I think it's fair to say. I think three or four of the biggest firms denied a comment even. So hopefully this is something that will start the the processes at uh, at the partner level in in Sweden. Great, glad to be on the forefront. And today's topics. Do you want to lead us in? Yeah, the the big one I think is the dissenting opinions that we're doing partly because there's some sort of conference again in Stockholm about this that we are not attending, right? It was Remember yesterday. Answer? It was yesterday. From the okay, time so we're we recording. Were yeah. For a fact, attending, yeah. <laughs> yeah. About dissenting opinions. I so, went, so, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to start research and talk to each other before we record. <laughs> well, I thought I would just chime in as you gave your... Okay, well, that's good, because uh, so I'll, I'll lead this topic, and you you actually went there, because I was a little bit afraid that we, we were going to miss a lot of good points, because it was discussed among senior members of the community yesterday, but that's good. Then we have you as a representative of that community, or at least as someone who <laughs> listened to that yeah, community. Exactly. And then? Uh, and then we have arbitrators at arbitrators on the witness stand so arbitrators that have been called during set aside or enforcement proceedings to testify as witnesses and we'll discuss the scope of what they can actually testify to if they can testify in the first place and happy fun time is 
about professional organizations and the different groups and associations there's so many and we talk about which you are supposed to be a part of and uh, which you may not necessarily have to think about <laughs> those poor be- organizations <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, edit that out john <laughs> yeah exactly um all right well that sounds like a good three and let's keep going <laughs> So turning to dissenting opinions, this is really a a meta topic. It doesn't really have a lot to do with substance. It's just arbitration people talking about practices in arbitration. But I I think it's an interesting topic because the way you approach this matters is a lot about how you perceive international arbitration generally. So in that respect, it's a very good good, uh, litmus test on the perspective you have and, and maybe from where you are in terms of geography and background and whatnot. Because you, once again, as an American, I keep throwing this at you, you you are probably used to the dissenting opinions because it's very much a tradition and and common law litigation, right? Definitely. From the Supreme Court on downward, we we love a dissenting opinion. Yeah, it's very hard to read. I mean, you cannot even read a U.S. Supreme Court judgment without reading it together with the dissent because it's typically a dissent, even though there are a few nine to zero cases. Most of the cases involve at least one dissent and you have to like read them together in order to get the full picture of the what the court actually said. Definitely. And later courts refer to earlier courts dissents, at, for example, in a lot of like the civil rights cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a tool to develop the law. I actually have when I first time I went to the U.S., before I was even a lawyer, I bought a book called I Dissent, which is a, a book that basically tells the U.S. history through dissenting opinions in the Supreme Court from the 19th century onward. I've, it's my favorite gift book to give to lawyers for birthdays that's like, and stuff. Yeah, that's good. I'm never that's inviting good. you to my birthday, but yeah, that, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> for the right person. Oh, you get it. <laughs> Next time, it's, your, it's my uh, Christmas gift for you. Great. But for uh, for civil lawyers, it's not the case. We are historically more hesitant. For example, the European Court of Justice that Hannes told us is called, you can say, the ECJ or the CJEU. Mm-hmm. They do not even allow for dissenting opinions. So all judges have to agree, which is interesting because I, I would imagine it makes for a different kind of decision-making process when you have to make sure that everyone's on board. Definitely. The CAS mm-hmm. does not allow dissenting opinions. Really? That was said at the conference yesterday. And I uh, thought it would tie into our earlier podcast. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, good. I was really impressed by your sports arbitration detail, <laughs> but that, that explains it. <laughs> but this, then, just maybe I, we, since we had already a few episodes back given up on the distinction between civil and common law, <laughs> uh, I think we could sort of move beyond that bridge because the fact that you are used to it from your home jurisdiction doesn't mean that you like it in the international arbitration context. And I think it's fair to say, and, and I'm very much open to, to your disagreement, but most arbitrators at least are very hesitant to see dissenting opinions being issued on a three-member tribunal, right? Yes, definitely. But still, most arbitrators have dissented, I think, at least once. Some of them, of course, a lot more. And chair people this is my impression chair people especially they view it as a very undesirable thing and there are various strategies to try to avoid that one of the two co-arbitrators actually dissent 
I found something from Alan Redfern simply because we talked about him in the past. I thought we should cite him because he has categorized dissenting opinions uh, three ways, three different kinds of dissenting opinions. The first is good ones. They're short, polite, and restrained. Mm -hmm. Second is bad ones. They uh, argue that the majority is fundamentally misguided or ignorant. And third, we have the ugly ones, which attack the conduct of the arbitration. Mm -hmm. And only the first good category uh, should be issued as a dissenting opinions. The other two you should try to refrain from as much as possible. And this ties into what I think is the natural starting point and what I assume they discussed yesterday. And it it's the research that we have on this, which is pretty rudimentary, at least the one, the, the research that I'm aware of. And I'm assuming that there's more research out there now that there are so many scholars doing empirical work. This is such a good topic. So there must be works in progress on dissenting opinions. So I, if, if so, please contact us and we will share that on the podcast. But the things that I'm aware of started with uh, Albert Jan Vandenberg study, an article which is like five, seven years old. Which did they talk about this yesterday? Uh, not specifically his book, but I'm sure okay. the topics. If it's it's actually an article, and I think it was even an article for like a festschrift. So when you retire or you celebrate in a, a senior judge or arbitrator or lawyer, anyway, you often publish a book and people write articles in it. And it's not really always scientific, but in this article, he did something semi-scientific, and he looked at I think some 150 investment treaty awards and used that study as a basis for talking about dissenting opinions. And he found that in 22%, uh, this is, I should say, also investment treaty cases for the same reasons as always, i.e. commercial awards are not easily available. So right. we're looking at investment treaty cases. 22% of the cases he found dissenting opinions, including opinions that were branded as separate opinions, but uh, disagreed with the tribunal at some point. And this is the interesting point. In almost 100% of the cases, the dissent was issued in favor of the party who appointed that dissenter. Right. And I think at this stage, I didn't read this uh, article very carefully when it came out, but I, there's only one, I think, at this stage, like five, seven years ago. It's a famous, one of the best dissenting opinions that's out there with, with a chair, uh, Prosper Weil, uh, dissenting against his co-arbitrators. But that, that's, I think, is the sole exception, at least when they when Vandenberg made his study. Yeah, uh, Bo Gehon Nielsen, who's a reputable practitioner here in Stockholm, he actually said at the conference yesterday that he one time dissented as chairman. Oh, really? Yeah. And then that's that led into a What's case. that? That's got to be in an unpublished case. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think it was just an anecdote because there okay. was a comment from Jennifer Kirby saying, if you win the chair, you win the award, mm -hmm. uh, which I had a a lot to say about that but um and then he said well as chair once i dissented but again you're right it's extremely rare and it's also since this study there's been a set aside of an ect award in paris and a case uh, energo alliance versus moldova where the chair dissented and that's also interesting to read because if, if I may speak speak freely as an academic, it was it was in Russian the proceedings. So I, I do, I've only read the English translation of the award. But the reasoning of the two co-arbitrators, the majority, it's just it's very hard to understand what the hell they are trying to achieve. So the chairperson dissented, and 
it was subsequently set aside in, in, in Paris, largely on the same grounds that the dissenting uh, chairman argued. So there's been at least one more publicly known since then, but it, it is super, super rare that the chairperson dissents. And I think it's fair to say it might not be 99.5%, but okay, so let's say it's like 96% of the cases, the dissenting arbitrator dissents on behalf, so to speak, of right. the that appointed him or her, which of course lifts the big question of neutrality. Is it a good idea that we have this? And after Fundenberg published this, in which he mildly criticized the phenomenon of dissenting arbitrators and tried to argue that it's better to solve this within the tribunal, he got support from, from Jan Paulson. And this will be a separate segment, I think, down the line, because we don't have time to go into this battle of the giants. But Jan Paulson supported Fundenberg and even went one step further and argued that it, we should abolish party-appointed arbitrators altogether. Yeah, I've read that article. Yeah, so let's put a pin in that and return in a few episodes because that's a good topic in and of itself. And then after that, some other people jumped in and we had ourselves uh, an interesting ball game. Charlie Brower, for example, wrote a very vigorous defense of both the right to dissent and the party appointed arbitrator's role in the system. And uh, I mean, there's no way for us to do justice to this debate among distinguished men, but uh, since we're recording this on the fly and we are far from distinguished ourselves, but let's do that a little bit down the line. Instead, I'll try to sort of separate what are the pros and cons and see if we can agree, you and I. Yeah. So on the pro side, why do we dissent or why do we want dissenting opinions? And maybe once again, at the outset, I think we should just stick to investment treaty arbitration because in commercial arbitration, it's a different thing entirely. It's an interesting distinction though, but I get the impression that it's rarer in commercial arbitration and also that since generally the awards are not published you are writing primarily for the parties whereas in the treaties where you're sometimes uh, correctly or incorrectly writing for a larger audience because you know scholars and other future tribunals will read the dissenting opinion yeah i i'll chime in on like commercial arbitration because i think there you're right there are completely different purposes to a dissent um, but I think it could raise some points as well. So uh, continue and I'll chime in. Okay. Then um, on the pro side, first of all, dissenting opinions uh, would lead to better rewards because the majority is forced to act more responsibly. They know that they will have a dissenting opinion in written form, and so they would have to uh, shape up their game and uh, address the, the weaker points that the dissenting opinion is getting at. That's one big pro, I think, yep. or one could argue. Secondly, it will uh, increase party confidence in the process because it's transparent and the losing party typically then will know that why they lost and also that someone sort of understood and saw and advocated for their points within the tribunal. So it's better for, for the party confidence. Can I, can I insert myself really quickly? Uh, it was discussed yesterday that the ICC, when they receive, when they go through the scrutiny analysis, they do not necessarily notify the parties that a dissenting opinion has been rendered they will scrutinize in most cases they'll scrutinize the dissenting opinion but in the case there is a dissenting opinion that decision will go to the court for a vote um and or for like an assessment of the case but uh it's not 100 percent that the parties will find out so to go to your point about transparency um it, i mm, guess it mm. could depend 
That's interesting. And I, maybe we should just back it up a little bit and explain to those of our listeners who are not acting frequently in ICC cases that the ICC is different from, it's not from every other institution, but almost, I think there's maybe a few other minor ones, but it's fair to say that ICC is the only major arbitral institution that scrutinizes awards prior to their publication. Right. So under the ICC rules, the tribunal has to submit a draft version of the award that is then scrutinized by the ICC and sometimes even by the court of the ICC, which is the governing body where you have national experts appointed by their national committees. So there's a lot of formalities that can kick in in order for an ICC award to, to be, I guess, uh, better enforced or you know, the quality of the award is intended to be uh, better within the system. Well, that's okay. So that's a good point. So if there's a dissenting opinion that triggers uh, supposedly then bigger review by by the ICC court. Right. Good point. And then finally, and third, and this is my third third point. Uh, dissenting opinions contribute to developing the law, and here we really see the distinction between treaty arbitration and commercial arbitration. I think. Right. Because you could argue, and some would, I'm not sure where I would stand on this, that investment treaty arbitration is different from commercial arbitration because you are, we talked about this before, you're adjudicating disputes with the public interest and they are typically published and you, you have an obligation, some would argue, that goes beyond that to the parties alone. Right. And then on the uh, against side, we have, of course, the neutrality argument that was already addressed that it's perceived as you know having someone on the inside that's just yeah. advocating in a role that they are not really supposed to be advocating in because they are support, supposed to adjudicate and not advocate for example this goes to your points about what a bad dissent is um or i mean and you could say that it's a bad dissent or not but to have the dissent be a seed for the losing party to kind of set aside or enforce the award it's kind of like yes. a red flag being like Exactly. Look what happened. You might want to look into this. This is my second point, actually. Oh, okay. You sort of create a roadmap to a challenge. Right. And you see that all the time. And since I've been going through so many challenge proceedings, if there's a dissenting opinion, the party that challenges the award typically models their claim on the dissenting opinion. Right. But if you were sitting as arbitrator and you were appointed, um, would you feel that it was part of your mandate to... If you had a reasonable suspicion that not, let's say there wasn't like foul play or anything, but that you disagreed on a point of law and that it was a misapplication of a point of law, do you think that, or misinterpretation of a point of law, do you think that it would be, you were, you would be bound by some sort of ethos that says basically I should do this because I was appointed by this party? That's not my natural inclination. I mean, I, I can see that that argument and in certain circumstances, of course, because this depends so much on the facts and the, the legal points, I, I might be, be in that position. But I think my my go to sort of like default mode would be to find a way for those concerns to be incorporated into the award on the assumption that the chairperson in this case would want to avoid a dissenting opinion. Right. So that, you know, so I would flag that I don't agree with this, but here's a few suggestions that I might agree to. Can we soften the language or compromise on this point? Then you might get my signature on, on a unanimous award. But if not, I would have to dissent. Because right. I think I think this is just a personal, this is not a statement as to the desirable 
development of the law. But I personally th- think that I would probably want to stay away from dissenting as much as as just possible. Yeah. What about you? No, I agree. I would feel really uncomfortable seeing that as part of my mandate to kind of like have this be their day in court. I think if I was appointed, for example, if I was appointed for a certain type of knowledge of a case and I actually had a fundamental disagreement about a, you know, interpretation of law or whatever, um, then I would give it a dissent, but I would by all means, uh, by no means think that um, I was bound to, or, you know, that it was part of my duty to give a dissenting opinion to a losing yeah. party. Yeah, but that that raises the point really of... Uh... I mean, for whom are you writing the award? Right. Because the, the, the way you respond to that question sort of informs your, your view of dissenting opinions, I think. If you're writing the award for the parties and specifically for the party that appointed you, in, which in this case, in 99% of the cases, is the losing party, if, if that is your only aspect, then it might be easier to justify writing a dissenting opinion because then you would want to explain to the losing party that appointed you that they didn't appoint you in vain. But then, then the other side of that coin is, of course, that then that's exactly what people that are criticizing the system are saying, basically, <laughs> that yeah. we have arbitrators with an interest in being appointed again, and they they would stop at nothing to ensure that they are appointed again, basically. Right. Then the final point on the against side that I've come up with is the deliberation process. What happens to the dialogue in the tribunal if one uh, arbitrator... Okay, good. <laughs> if if one arbitrator flags initially, like I don't agree with this, and like becomes, uh, uh, I think Fundamental calls is a quasi advocate in in uh, or on the tribunal in the deliberations. It sort of distorts the decision making process. I think you could argue. But would it distort it or would it enhance it? By I guess you could argue both ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think the presumption and the reason why I'm like excited that you brought this up is what it wasn't discussed yesterday is there was a presumption that every tribunal is deliberating. And I don't think that's the case. I think logistically, ideally, you're going to try and get a deliberation in before everyone catches their flights after the hearing, but that's not always the case. So deliberations become minimal. So your dissenting opinion becomes your only way to express any, you know, well thought out and reasoned view that isn't the chairman's view. Because like what I said before, you win the chairman, you win the case. If the chairman is drafting the award, usually they do. And they say, okay, here's the award. Give me your comments. It's usually give me your comments, not tell me I'm wrong, uh, depending on the chairman. Uh, But so in the absence of a proper deliberation, going back to episode one of the arbitration station, in absence of that, do you think that a dissenting opinion is the only way or an example of a way that an arbitrator could have their day in court or, you know, preserve their right to deliberate via their right to a dissenting opinion. Yeah, that's a fair point. Although I would like to think that it doesn't happen that much. You and I both know that the scenario you just described isn't very rare, but it should be, (laughs) I think. And this is in in, in the article, Fandenberg, of course, promotes himself a little bit, but justifiably so, I think, because he he writes that as a chairperson, he always aspires to have a 20, 30 minute session at the end of each hearing day, where he just asks the core arbitrators, what did we learn today to sort of uh, get their pulse and see where where they are in terms of the decision making process so that there's constantly a dialogue within the tribunal so that they can preempt 
uh, disagreements at, at an early stage. And that, that seems to me as a very sound chairperson strategy, but I guess the scenario you're describing is just as usual, i.e. that you only exchange written drafts towards the end with comments. And in that scenario, of course, uh, it's easier for the, the arbitrator that does not agree to sort of voice his or her disagreement before it's too late. Yeah, I was alluding to the Prosper Vile, uh, the dissenting chair, which was for a long time the only av- publicly available example of that. It's in uh, Tokyo's Tokeles uh, versus Ukraine, classic investment, early investment treaty case on, um, well, this point that he dissented on was the definition of investor. It's an interesting case. It's, it's I think it's a it's maybe one of the best dissenting opinions, or maybe one of the most read ones at least, because it, his his legal points didn't get a lot of support afterwards. Uh, in fact, I think it's fair to say the other way around that the the majority reasoning is is now the widely accepted one. But it's interesting to read simply because he's so friendly and polite and almost hesitant to dissent and like makes 47 different reservations as to the the brilliance of his co-arbitrators and then he goes on for like 10 15 pages and and uh, shoots down (laughs) their reasoning we have some other do you have any classic dissenting opinions or is this an academic (laughs) question yeah (laughs) no by all means joel please (laughs) nerd away yeah And uh, another one in that category of, of hesitant dissenting opinions is Jon Paulson. Once, once again, one of my one of my favorite arbitrator writers. There's a case I can't remember the case name. I'll have to look it up. It's against Slovenia. HEP versus Slovenia. I think it's the first and maybe the, uh, the only time Jon Paulson has dissented. If you allow me, just let me just read the opening paragraph here because he's also not super keen on dissenting. Okay. Incidental divergences within, oh, sorry, with fellow arbitrators do not, in my view, necessarily require written expression. I've never before felt impelled to dissent. In this instance, I unfortunately find myself in disagreement with respect to the decisive proposition advanced by my two esteemed colleagues, which, as far as I can see, could be obtained only by an impermissible rewriting of the treaty we are bound to apply. Given my duty to exercise independent judgment, I find it impossible to subscribe to the decision and necessary to record my reasons for differing. My individual opinion is lengthy because it seems fair that I should not content myself with criticizing what what I view as the majority's decisive error. This can be done, as will be seen in a few paragraphs. I thus also, one, set out what I view as the proper solution and two, expose a number of pistes, which I guess is like misdirections or off off road tracks. Right. So this is the way he opens the dissenting opinion with, and then once again he he spares no punches when he goes into the actual legal <laughs> points. <laughs> so you can tell both from both of these uh, dissenting opinions they are very hesitant to do this and to uh, put in writing a disagreement w- with their colleagues essentially. Def- well, that's what it is, right? It's such a small community, and you're you don't want to be like my knowledge of the law or my interpretation of the law is right and yours is wrong. That's not what you want to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then I, let me just get, get this all out, and we can edit away after a while. There's an early dissenting opinion that is very, very good by Thomas Velde, who unfortunately passed away when he was too young. It's in Thunderbird. 
an early NAFTA case on on the fair and equitable treatment standard, in which he develops a separate opinion on legitimate expectations, uh, suggesting that this doctrine, which barely existed at this very early time of treaty practice or arbitration practice, could draw from uh, public and administrative law analogies. And since then, of course, there's been many books and articles on this very point. And I think he was the first to voice this general point in uh, an early dissenting opinion that has since been instrumental in developing the understanding of legitimate expectations and and more broadly how public law or administrative law could inform our understanding of of that doctrine. So a very good one that actually clearly developed the, the law. And then finally, I know I have to bring this up because this is something that is often overlooked. Uh, in Vivendi 2, the infamous exit case, in the annulment proceedings, uh, John Dalhuisen, I think he's Dutch. Yeah. He's a professor <laughs> in London. Yeah. But he. <laughs> it's like the fourth time we cannot pronounce Dutch people's names properly. Yeah. That's it's their own fault. I, I think he's Dutch anyway. It sounds Dutch. I think he. Or I know he's a professor in London, but he might be Dutch originally. Anyway, he dissented uh, on the annulment committee and. He made, uh, basically he attacked the exit secretariat, accusing them of acting as the fourth arbitrator, trying to ascertain the, or, you know, ensure a case law consistency within exit and proposing language and sort of intervening in the decision-making process. Very, very controversial. And especially yeah. that he did it in, in, in a decision-making body and not like, you know, in, a, in an op-ed or a GAR article. So, uh, and I, I mean, it, we should say for the record that I, I don't think that this view is shared by many other in the field as of now, but the interesting thing is that he was never appointed again. This is his sole case as an arbitrator, even though he's an expert on investment law and he's a professor in London. He had one case Revenge. and secretary and he's out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Another reason, you should put that on the con of dissenting. That, that's true. No further if, if you offend people. <laughs> uh, interesting. And then, of course, we just have to mention, uh, simply because we have to mention, Brigitte Stan and Charlie Brower. And once again, I haven't seen any updated research, but I'm 100% sure that these two arbitrators are the most frequent dissenters. It's, it's one Googling away to, to confirm, but I don't have to confirm it because it's true. Brigitte Stan who is, of course, appointed by respondents and Charlie Brower by claimants. Typically, might be a few exceptions, but I think, by and large, they have a pretty clear uh, profile in terms of their appointments. They have both dissented so many times, on so- sometimes in different cases, but on similar points, I think on the MFN class, for example. It makes for very good writing just to, to read Brigitte Stan or, or Charlie Brower dissenting opinions. Stan especially writes very well and clearly so that uh, something i tend to recommend for my students just to to read and brush up on analytics you were so enamored by her writing you just like (laughs) got caught off guard brigitte got your tongue joel (laughs) oh did you write that down it's staying in there yeah i've been i've been uh, free-flowing notes while you've been talking and i i was saving that one so what else was said yesterday? Did they mention any other classic dissenting opinions? Uh, classic, no, but they, they talked about more, I think the, the real like overall, what was the first question that came out of the gate was, should we even have dissenting opinions? And then you go into what you talked about, which is basically the 
types or good dissenting opinions. So they've differentiated, Jose Rossell differentiated between uh, like formal dissenting opinions that we actually need, or is it a dissenting opinion in the sense that you're just giving your opinion and you want to be heard? Um, so they talked yeah. about that, and but and then they just talked about like very unique permutations where it could come up, like if pause, 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 yes, and kill me for this, but this is the second time. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. There's no way to qualify unique. I, I listened to the first time you said it a few episodes back, and I was like, if if this ever happens again as a public service, I have to step up. Sorry oh. for being a d bag. <laughs> you are so unique. You could <laughs> no, can't do that. No. Okay. <laughs> Fine. You're extremely reasonable. How about that? Yeah. Thank uh, you so much. Yeah. Sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> Uh, like if you're talking about costs and you're saying you're in a cost follow, follow the event jurisdiction and someone, an arbitrator dissents, there has been a party that argued that they should only have to pay two thirds of the cost of the arbitration because technically mm. they were one third wrong or two thirds wrong. Um, so that was something that came up. And then there's something in the UK. I don't know if this was LCIA or if this was um, just part of the... I, I think it might have been the LCIA. But basically, they have costs determined separately from the awards. The award comes out with the dissent. And then you have your determination of costs after. Um, so they talked about how the dissent could kind of form part again talking about like the mm, cost mm -hmm. um i see so there was that and then they also talked about whether you should get paid for a dissent it was it was a lot of like you know controversial one-liners yes, yes. and practical three people as well yeah it was yeah no exactly but you know and which, the is, LCIA, which, which said about wanting to ex expressing themselves actually made me think that rather than common law versus civil law I think you can see a tendency here that is it's it's rather professor versus practitioner. Oh, maybe because <laughs> most of the really like uh, colorful and and uh, eccentric and frequent dissenting opinions tend to be from from professors who want to express themselves rather than practitioners who might be generally speaking more attuned to like the parties needs to you know solve the dispute efficiently and not go on a. a Happy fun time, uh, legal reasoning, Odyssey for 25 extra pages. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I The only thing... So we I have had a dissenting opinion rendered in my client's favor once, and we did not set it aside, so we weren't like, you know, cheering in that sense, but or apply to set it aside. But what we, what we appreciated was there was this... And I think I talked about this in an earlier podcast about it was a classification issue between it was applicable law mm -hmm. and it was like, yeah. is this procedural substantive? It was statute of limitations. And there was a reliance on a Swedish doctrine or a Swedish principle that it was kind of in the soft law. And you had the chairman and the wing, one of the wing arbitrators who were not Swedish decide something that had to do with Swedish law. And the Swedish law arbitrator dissented um, on the interpretation of these classification rules and how it would apply, which I thought was, it did throw a bone in that sense, but it was also kind of saying, okay, 
if you're the only Swedish person on this panel and you disagree with the interpretation, that could be a, a very welcomed dissenting opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good dissenting opinion, I think. Yeah. You know what? I, I figured out a segue into your next segment. Oh, okay. It's once again the CME versus Czech Republic case. Yes. Because in that case, uh, the we talked about this before, the arbitrator who was left out, supposedly, of the del- deliberations dissented and pretty forcefully attacked the other co-arbitrators. And this prompted, of course, the Czech Republic to s- try to set aside the award in Stockholm. And then when they did so, because part of their grounds for setting aside was that the arbitrator had been left out of deliberations, as explained in his dissenting opinion, you have to call, they, the court had to call, I think, all the arbitrators and a lot of other witnesses uh, to testify as to what went on during deliberations and the proceedings. Yeah. And that's the second segment. Perfect segue. Here we go. All right, the arbitrators on the witness stand, as we can call it. And so the question that we have before us is, can arbitrators be called to give testimony on the arbitral procedure before the court in charge of annulment or enforcement actions? So to set the stage for you, you have an arbitration, the arbitration comes to an award, um, and then the award is applied to get set aside or enforced, and then they have some contention on an issue that had to do with the arbitration procedure from the prior arbitration. And then you want as counsel to have one of the arbitrators testify. And this can come up in many different ways on how the arbitrator could testify. But if we go back to what you said about the CME case, I think you're right that that would be a perfect example on when an arbitrator would have the requisite knowledge um, to talk about something from the previous case that wasn't necessarily opening up the case um, to talk about why they decided certain things, etc. Um, the problem is, is that where the court that you're in is going to determine the ability of the arbitrator to testify. This isn't an international principle. It's going to go to each state's or each country's um, arbitration law. Yeah, um, place of arbitration. It's, it's it matters so much. We'll, we'll have to have like a questionnaire, and that'll be one of the questions uh, for everyone to answer. Boring. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you. We have you online from like the other side of the world. Can you call an arbitrator <laughs> to testify under the lex arbitri of your? No, no. no. Okay, listen to about flight book schedules. For birthdays. I think uh, this is a little interesting. <laughs> to lawyers, okay. other fellow lawyers, ad- academics, typically with <laughs> there you true go. interest in the law. You can all go in a hole. Um, so Austria, for example, does allow um, a court to hear testimony from an arbitrator regarding deliberation specifically. So it specifically mentions uh, deliberation because some people won't see deliberation as something that an arbitrator can testify to because it could go into, for example, if U.S. law, um, they say that an arbitrator is like a court judge and court judges have immunities in U.S. law from testimony. Um, it's and it's also in France that they have this uh, privilege. So depending on where you are, then arbitrator could say, okay, well, according to this jurisdiction, arbitrators are the same as judges, and we shouldn't have to give testimony because we have an immunity that we can invoke. Hmm. That's interesting. It makes sense, although I hadn't thought about it. Is it in fact so that they have the same type of immunity? Do you know as judges, no. or is it some sort of analogy oh, oh, oh. that? 
Yes. Uh, the, no, it is the same type of immunity. There's not a separate arbitrator immunity. It's an adjudicator uh-huh. immunity. Okay, I see. Um, and but there are, I mean, depending on where you are, there's different like permutations on how this comes out. So in the English Arbitration Act, for example, um, there's no specific provision on whether an arbitrator can be called as a witness, but they do have case law. It is a common law jurisdiction, and in the case law, it says that an umpire, because of course they're you know equating it to a judge, uh, was a competent witness like any other person to prove matters material to the issues, whatever that means, determine, i.e., determining the arbitrator's jurisdiction. Um, questions might be properly put to him for the purposes of proving the proceedings before him so as to arrive at what was the subject matter adjudication when the proceedings closed. And uh, the third This is not one, in the act. What's that? Okay. Is this the act? No, 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 no this is from judgment. case law. Oh, yeah. There's no provision in the act. Um, that, but no questions could be properly put to an arbitrator to prove how the decision was arrived at or what items were included or what was the meaning which he intended at the time to be given to it. Uh, which I think is, I, the re- that's the reason why I brought up England, because I think that third point is really interesting, that we really need to draw the line or, you know, where do you think an arbitrator, and I kind of pose this not rhetorically to you, the scope of an arbitrator's testimony, how far do you think an arbitrator can go to talk about their award? Or do you think it should just be limited to procedure or everything? Well, that depends. Is this a pure legge ferenda question? So what yes. do I think, yes. uh, normatively speaking? Yes. Hmm, I don't really know. I haven't thought about that that much. <laughs> the analogy to, to court judges doesn't really sit with me <laughs> because it's i mean the proceedings are confidential but they are so by virtue of a contract or like a, a, right. a private law agreement and not in order to you know safeguard the interests of democracy which is the case with with courts and judges immunity and the sanctity of the deliberations right. so i just on that general level i don't really see a problem with arbitrators being ordered or instructed to disclose what went on during the deliberations. And I also guess, presumably in most cases, they wouldn't address the substance because I can't really see how that would be relevant. It's rather the procedure. So what what happened in terms of like what went on, how was the meeting, who was involved, what, you know, what was the tone like, what was the interactions between the arbitrators. It, it's not so much like what did you disagree on and and why? So let's have an example. Let's say you're setting aside an award for the failure to address a specific question put forward by the parties. Uh, Could you, would you allow, or would you want an arbitrator to come testify and said, yes, I actually considered that point and I just dismissed it as irrelevant or not crucial to the findings. Um, Or to say that uh, actually the parties did not bring up this question do you think that would be like a legitimate testimony? Yes, okay. I think. That's well, my, my gut instinct, at least. So, and I think it's a gray area, so I don't think there's a right or wrong an- answer, but I think you're onto something when you say that the arbitrator is a function of uh, this contractual relationship between the parties. Because if you think about the arbitrator's function being, you know, functus officio, once the award is rendered, he can't really deviate or modify the award because his role, you know, disappears like the pumpkin on Cinderella. Yeah. Um, so 
And it also kind of touches on the principle of the finality of the award. Are you going to then kind of like rip open this award again and um, kind of go through the nitty gritty if you admit testimony for an arbitrator who decided the award to then like go back and start interpreting the contents um, of the award? Yeah, that doesn't sit very well with most arbitration people, I think. The procedure is one thing, but having having a de novo trial on points of the merits, it's just not very attractive. Right. Um, another jurisdiction is Norway, uh, and they had a Supreme Court rendered in 2008, which has been published a lot. Um, so this dispute, and I just want to bring it up as an example. So this dispute related to an insurance agreement, and the arbitral tribunal made an award based on a clause which provided that the interpretation of the reinsurance contract would be made from a practical view on the basis of equity rather than in a strict legal sense. Oh, <laughs> bad move. Bad move. So the losing party applied to the Norwegian courts for an order vacating the award on the ground that no party asserted this equity defense. And in order to establish that this provision had been asserted, which is kind of what I just discussed with you, the opposing party requested permission to call the three arbitrators as witnesses. Um, and the first course authorized that testimony. The Supreme Court, it went up to the Supreme Court, and while th they found that calling arbitrators as witnesses in principle was prohibited, this prohibition was not absolute, and they found it was permissible under Norwegian law to request testimony of an arbitrator as to what actually happened during the arbitrating arbitration proceedings. Um, but the testimony of an arbitrator may not address his personal view of the case, nor can it be used to clarify or supplement the award. So you're kind of mm. talking about what happened. Yeah, this is a much more elegant way of phrasing what I just tried to, to say, basically. Yeah. And then the final thing that I wanted to bring up is the ability to be cross-examined. If you think if they are allowed, could they be cross-examined? Uh, I, I don't care about the normative question. I just want to see arbitrators being cross-examined in court. <laughs> it would be such like a, you know, fencing of minds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they have to be the worst possible expert witnesses to be to be crossed because they are typically themselves so experienced from arbitration. So exactly. it would really be like, you know, going to a, a gladiator match in ancient <laughs> Rome or something. Say, we should have like chicken fights like in the in the backyard of someone's house or like fight club and be like let's make let's make a broad call because now we see from our listener data that we have people from most parts of the world if you know of a case that's a set aside that is public in your jurisdiction in which an arbitrator is being called to witness let us know and we will broadcast this or maybe even go there ourselves personally yeah just witness it because that that's got to be you know like the the World Cup final for arbitration nerds to see a senior arbitrator being cross-examined by a counsel in court. So fun. So fun. All right, let's move on to the happy fun time. Yay. So moving on to happy fun time and professional associations. I've noticed one thing that I hadn't thought about before I started to think about this particular subject more thoroughly. There seems to be a cutoff date in the field of international arbitration, and that's age 45. Many, many things right. depend on it, on on a classification of you being young-ish or younger. And the the, the, <laughs> the the cutting off date is the day you turn 45, it seems to me. Do, do you share this, or is this just I, my... I definitely do, and I think 40 is a bit old, but... 
<laughs> but yeah, it is the, the magical number. 45, you said. Yeah, I don't know from where it comes. I Maybe it started with the GAR, Global Arbitration Reviews, 45, under 45, ranking uh, you know the most proficient young professionals in the field, but now it seems to me that it's it's sort of a general. It's the same in Sweden. When you move from JAS, the Young Arbitrators, into, into Swedish Arbitration Association, which is for the grown-ups, is when you turn 45. So that's sort of the deciding date. It seems a little bit arbitrary, but I guess you, we need to have some sort of uh, agreement on when you become old. There's probably some discrimination case somewhere where it was like they were 45 and they wanted to be young again. Yeah, it's probably involving a party somewhere right. where the, the young organization of something had a better party than the grown-up organization. <laughs> Sounds like a class action from San Diego somewhere. <laughs> but, the okay, that was just by way of introduction because we are going to talk briefly about professional associations. I'm on the email list on, I think, every one of these and I cannot keep them apart. And I'm assuming I'm not the only one who has this issue. We... We decided to talk about this because last week we went to a bunch of conferences, including the ones, the, the one that gave us an award. Uh, it was the Young Arbitrator Sweden, Yas. You on the same evening went to another one hosted by the uh, ICAL. Yes, alumni. So International Commercial Arbitration Law Master's Program at Stockholm University has their own alumni group okay but that, that's good that's sort of relevant here but i guess it's sort of a closed group yeah. because you also need to get an llm from there so it's not open to everyone <laughs> not directly at least no and then the day afterwards we both went to this young ICA cross-examination workshop which was also in stockholm and young ICA is of course the younger sister or daughter organization to ICA, the international congress for commercial arbitration Maybe council. Really <laughs> We're just going to give acronyms. Of people yeah, exactly. <laughs> no explanations. You have to Google. So ICA, anyway, is is big, 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 uh, a global organization that does so many things, publishes papers, and hosts the, the, this biannual major. I think we called it the the Olympics of arbitration, and they have the young ICA, which is all over the world, hosting different kinds of practical workshops and, and networking and on. They also have a mentorship program that I haven't been part of and you haven't either. No, I haven't, right? but it seems very, very useful and exciting. Yeah, I think I applied a couple of years ago. I was probably too junior to even be up for consideration then. But the, the setup basically is that they pair up a handful of younger arbitration professionals that have to be members of Young Ica with a senior arbitrator based on preferences, I guess, and geography and some other factors. And then for a year or two, you are involved in this group, the handful of younger people with the senior arbitrator, and you meet a few times and you talk over Skype. And depending on what kind of arbitrator you, you get signed up with, it might be also Finnish woman uh, on the Young ICA conference that mentioned that she was in Pierre Tessier's group many years ago and that they went to his cabin to have cross-examination uh, workshops in his cabin and that sounded to me like the optimal kind of mentorship that yeah you it was fascinating yeah. i was like did not know that existed yeah but i've heard that from i have different experiences from different friends and colleagues ranging from the you know me meeting five times in different cities with all expenses paid for to like you know exchanging a few emails with the arbitrator so i guess it depends a lot on, on who you get right. uh, <laughs> 
What else do we have? Yeah, but we there's have so this. many more. ICC Young Arbitration Forum. Oh, yeah, YAF. YAF. Do one of their I think, unless they did the secretary training, but I don't think so. I think it was the ICC more generally. Um, ITA International Transna- Institute of Transnational Arbitration. Never heard of. They usually do uh, hold some conferences as well. Arbitral Women. Mm-hmm. You follow them us. on Twitter, so I've seen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, they, they, I've seen a lot of uh, pictures from their events. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, I guess. We have Young Ixid and Young LCIA, which is called something else. Ye Ag. Yeah. Yag, yag. Yag. And various like f- Facebook groups. I think there's like five of them that I'm a member of called International Arbitration or Young International Arbitration People or what have you. But the point is not that there's plenty of these because basically every domestic jurisdi- jurisdiction has one and there's 400 more. Right. I think the point is what, what you do with them and do you have to be actively involved in each and every one of them? What do you think, Brian? I mean, the answer is no. I think you need to really like give 100% to like one or two. I know people try to get involved with everything because for some reason now on CVs, there's like a organizational membership section, um, which is nominal. I mean, people just put in anything that they've ever signed up for. Um, Yeah, that's, I've always found that to be strange because most of these organizations are, are open. Yeah. So the fact that you're a member of it just means that you sent someone an email basically. <laughs> right. And you've never gone to a conference ever. So it's weird that it's come up. So I feel like people n- think that they have to be associated with all of these organizations, but I don't see why. Um, I think if the best thing for you to do is really like delve into one, hold a conf, like be a part of organizing a conference, holding seminars, like being a visible person within an organization is way yeah. better than, than. I'm a little bit conflicted here because on the one end we have what, we said when we talked about networking that that the, we're part of a community and you have to interact with your community in order to grow and learn and you know become a better lawyer more generally. And these are the organizations typically through which you get access to this. That's on the one end. On the other end, I just feel that maybe sometimes we should just work, you know, do a good job and things will pan out. There's no point in going to all these different things and being on all the email lists and putting them on your CV because it's, it's sort of a secondary thing compared to your actual job which is to you know argue a case or write an award or be a secretary or write your doctoral dissertation i i agree to a certain extent but there's also the keeping your name on a list so everyone sees it type of thing it's it's just the whole networking side of our job um off the table after hours that type of work um it's really key to kind of lock into that initial relationship that you may have met someone once and you're like oh we had a good time and i would like for them to be in my network but i don't think we'll ever talk ever again these organizations and conferences are a way to kind of like rub shoulders with people more often the problem is is that they are so domestic uh most of them or it's hard to fly you go to maybe one conference a year out of town if you're not a partner um so it's a bit difficult yeah, you really have to make an informed decision because there's so much. This young Ica thing, I, I almost missed out. I just saw someone flag it on LinkedIn. And I think I'm a member of young Ica. And I, I think I would have noticed if if they sent some email about something going on in Stockholm. But I, I just didn't because there's so much information. I'm saying that's on me. That's not on them. But it's on me because I'm already getting all these emails that I just, you know, I, I view them almost as spam. 
right. which is which is a problem i think because there's just so much to choose from you need a curator who can tell you like which five you should look at and then you can go to two out of those five i i think at your office they're called curators at my office they're called secretaries but tomato tomato yeah Tomatoes, yeah. Well, tomatoes. they don't. They don't exist, obviously, <laughs> in the, <laughs> my office. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't get them either. It's it's flat hierarchy here. We, the, we do have lawevents.com though, friend of the podcast, and they do exactly this. So you can. Oh uh, yeah, that's a good one. They have a pretty good system actually for for searching. So that's a good way to do it. You know, I I have to round off now because I need to take care of my laundry. But I also want to mention just that. I moved from Stockholm to Gothenburg, and Gothenburg obviously lacks some international flair compared to Stockholm. But I see now from my living room window that they are shutting down the city because there's an EU meeting, EU council. So all the heads of state are going to be here for two days in Gothenburg now. Wow. And I live very close to the uh, super big uh, hotel complex that they are staying at. So maybe I'll, I'll get to see Emmanuel Macron when I'm <laughs> walking tomorrow. You should just intentionally walk over there and try to introduce yourself um all right well uh go get that tumble wash done joel and thanks for talking yes thank you and thanks to our listeners to jan kunster to young arbitrator sweden and follow us at the arb station and uh download us on itunes do not forget to comment subscribe comment give five stars because that's going to help us before we um, before iTunes comes out with their um, statistics so we know exactly who's listening and what you guys think. That's right. And also, please email us. We, I, I enjoy emails more than anything else. It's like the, you know, the actual snail mail of yesteryear. It's so rare that someone sits down and spends five minutes composing a whole message. And I, I'm, so, I'm like a child every time we get an email from a listener. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Bye-o.